From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. MLS Cup week, uh, which I don't know if either of us knew that we would be recording such a uh, it's an MLS Cup preview with the Timbers versus Atlanta United, but here Ooh. we are. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually surprised that we haven't gotten more people in our mentions uh, deriding us for not predicting this. Yeah. We had our first instance this week of somebody kind of wanting us to walk back our coach of the year predictions. <laughs> I, I don't not to pick on one person because it was a perfectly nice tweet, but usually during these runs, when a team goes on a run like this, you'll get a lot of people kind of going, aha, don't you feel a little bit foolish now? It's like, no, I think we all realize that this team has come together at the right time. Of course, it's the right time, but it's kind of come together in a way that was a little bit difficult to predict two or three months ago. Yeah, uh, I think as we'll get to predictions. My predictions of the individual games haven't been bad, but yeah, two or three oh months boy. ago. Oh <laughs> boy. It took you what? It took you 56 seconds yeah. to go through that. Oh, Absolutely. I've got a story about that. <laughs> boy, do I ever. Um, I am going to be happy with my predictions as long as they're close to right. But before we get into the uh, recapping the Timbers win at Kansas City in the Western Conference Championship Series and getting into the previewing for MLS Cup this weekend, I just want to say Nat Borchers is coming on the show a little bit later. Um, and he's going to talk a little bit to help us preview MLS Cup uh, as someone who you know was there in 2015, um, which I'm pretty excited about. Here's perspective. You already heard it. I know, but to hear it in. I'm really excited that we remembered to remember the guest within the first two minutes of the show. I was really making sure I did that this time. (laughs) You you physically had your hand up in the air. It's like, we're stopping everything right now. We're doing this. We're going to feel accomplished. But let's actually talk about the game that happened on Thursday because uh, it was a mildly memorable affair. Yeah, mildly. (laughs) That's one way to put it. That was my librarian's description of it. But uh, it wasn't even a tale of two halves. It was more of a tale of three different chapters where you've got sporting dominating and then Portland bringing themselves back in and then the frantic ending to it. I don't, I don't even know where to start. Should we start with the prediction? Yeah, I guess let's start with the prediction. Um, yeah, I came close to getting it right. I did not, in did you? fact, to get it right. Did you? I <laughs> came a few minutes away from getting see, it right. See, when I see that you predicted a 2-2 game, <laughs> I, it kind of looks like you predicted a game that was going to be tight. And, of course, the final score was tight. It was 3-2, to two, but... Look, if somebody predicts a 1-1 or 2-2 game, it makes it seem like they think the teams are pretty evenly matched. It's going to be a tight game. This was a crazy game. There's not very much from your prediction that indicates that. Well, I think I said that I think that someone's going to score first, and then they were going to see a lot (laughs) more goals. (laughs) You predicted a 2-2 in which somebody scores first. No, I mean, I I figured that there was going to be more of a high-scoring game because, uh, you know, depending on who scored first, the other team was probably going to feel a little bit of desperation. Mm Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I did not get the score completely right. I'll, I'll let you give the points this time, no, because no, no. why not? No, I, well, well, you definitely deserve some a good score here. I mean, 2-2. Unfortunately, I just don't think that game really <laughs> lent itself to, like, somebody getting, a like, a high score in a prediction. But let's give you 21 points. All right, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and you predicted, I believe, uh, Tui Loma and Chara score in that order. Yes, exactly. Well, we're swinging for the fences here. I now have, now that I gave you 21 points, I have about 278 <laughs> points to make up. 
I don't think I made up any of them yeah, with that not, one. <laughs> not really sure. Although Chara uh, did have a nice assist. He did. So but maybe I should give myself 0. .001 points. If, that sure, that sure. would just be annoying for the scorekeeper. <laughs> I get zero points. I've got to swing <laughs> for the deeper fences on the coming prediction. So stick around for the end of the show because I think I'm going to predict Merritt Paulson scores a goal. <laughs> Um, so let's talk a little bit about the game and what actually happened. You sort of talked about it being a tale of, you know, maybe three different games. Um, let's start with the first half because I, I think anyone who watched that first half might not have felt that confident that the Timbers were about to go through. Oh my God, they shouldn't. I don't, probably until the 40th minute, just before yeah. the 40th minute, I don't think the Timbers felt that confident because if they did, they weren't showing it on the field. I think that's the main problem. You know, there's starting to be stories coming out about just the uh, the heated discussion that the team had at halftime where from everything that's come out, it's just reminding the players that you've got to compete. And Kansas City was the only team competing for that first 40 minutes. Yeah, I, I mean, Jeff Annell even said after the game, you know, it was an honest meeting at halftime. And uh, it, it, my, I think that's a, you know, pretty safe way to put yeah, it. Yeah, that's a euphemism. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, the Timbers weren't good enough in that first half. And, and, you know, a lot of teams wouldn't have been able to recover from that. I sort of felt throughout that first half that this Timbers team is a team that's been able to fight throughout this playoff run. So I didn't expect them just to go down without a fight. And, and so my sort of feeling was that they're not good enough. They just have to get to the halftime to sort of regroup, have a talk, and come back with new energy in the second half. And so the 1-0, um, them going down 1-0, wasn't as concerning for me. My sort of feeling was that if the Kansas City manages to get that second goal, and they have two offside goals that don't actually count um, for momentarily, you think those might have been actual goals. But if they were able to get that second goal, I think the series would have been over. But the fact that the Timbers were able to leave, despite a bad first half, were able to prevent Kansas City from scoring more than one goal, I think made a huge difference for them to feel like they were still in it when they came back for the second half. Yeah, I think everybody remembers there were two disallowed goals in the first half, and the first of those two, which would have been Daniel Shalloway's second goal of the match, that one was really concerning to me because it was just another instance where the team just got out-competed. There was a corner kick, Shalloway out-jumps David Guzman at the far post, a looping ball back towards the near post, and the Timbers just don't react quickly enough and if it wasn't for Eichel Parr really making a mistake they're down 2 nothing, yeah. and it's all because they just weren't competing as hard as weren't going up for that ball as hard as Shallowy was weren't reacting to the ball looping back across kind of just hoping that it's not going into goal and then reacting too late the second goal uh, the second disallowed goal that was a good offside trap they caught uh, Rubio that was fine but it wasn't until when I was watching the game back until there's a moment at 19 minutes and 30 seconds where they finally get the ball in Kansas City's third. Andy Polo wins a 50-50, gets it to Davi Guzman, who hits this diagonal over to Sebastian Blanco. And that was the first time they had been able to play a pass like that, first time they had been able to create that space. And then Blanco takes on Graham Zussi, lays a ball off for Polo, who then gets a shot on goal. And it wasn't until that point, 19 minutes and 30 seconds into the match, that you really saw anything Timbers-y. Yeah. And from that moment until Diego Valeri scores his goal, I think it was in the 61st minute, I thought it, the Timbers had control of the game. I don't think they were particularly dangerous for a lot of that time. But at that moment, 1930, it became a different match. Oh, sorry, 39-30. Yeah, I was going to say, are you sure you're yeah. saying 1930? I'm like, 1930s, that's when Kansas City scored yeah, their goal. Yeah, I'm going to have to, uh, not to fact check you. disagree with you. Yeah, <laughs> It did become a different match, just not like you're saying yeah, it. Yeah, no. no, I mean, I agree. Right around the 40th minute, they, they, 
you you talked about it a little bit, but they had, I mean, they strung together two really long spells of possession towards the end of that half, and you started feeling like they were coming into that game. Um, and obviously in the second half, it, it was completely different. Um, and it's interesting because when you look at sort of the just the stats, I think Kansas City outshot Portland 20-8. to eight. The Timbers only took three shots on goal, but and they and they scored all three. Mm-hmm. But you really didn't get that feeling that Kansas City was in control of the game um, sort of after that 40th minute. I, I, I mean, the Timbers really started to take control after that 40th minute, even if the numbers of shots or something like that don't necessarily show that. Yeah, they had a good chance with, through Felipe Gutierrez, and I thought Jeff Atnell did really relatively yeah. well on that one. Of course, they had um, Joseph Fernandez's goal that made it 2-2. But... We're used to seeing the Timbers play like this, particularly when they're not only protecting a lead, but just when they're adopting the strategy of absorbing pressure. We saw it in Atlanta earlier this year in that 1-1 draw. But after Diego Valeri scored his first of two goals on the night, I don't think any of us watching that game really thought... I mean, maybe some people were worried because they're invested. They're fans. They're worried about it. But personally, I thought the Timbers had it. Yeah. I mean, it felt like the game was over. At that point, Kansas City needed two goals uh, to get back into it. Um, that said, I, I, I will say, I don't want to necessarily skip ahead too much, but I guess we can talk about it here. That said, I will say the last you know 10 minutes of the game were pretty uh, scary for, I think, anyone watching it. I suppose. I mean, they should be. If you're a Timbers fan, of course, any goal, you're, you're out at that point, and you know, anything can happen. But after, after Fernandez scores his goal to make it 2-2, and then after Albus Powell comes on, I thought that... You know, there weren't a ton of great chances for Kansas City. There were some crosses that they didn't connect on. But as we saw, I thought the Timbers were just as apt to kill off the match, if not give themselves another goal. Uh, I think at that point, I don't know. I guess I don't want to say that Kansas City was still shocked because they scored a goal. But I think as we saw in how the Timbers responded to allowing their goal in the first half, it took them 20 more minutes to get into the game. Like it takes you a little bit of time to come to grips with your new reality. And I think it took sporting too long to come to grips with theirs. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that we've seen throughout this playoff run is sort of just this response that the Timbers have um, and that fight that they've shown. Um, They've been good on the road, which I think is different from the regular season. (laughs) Slightly. (laughs) Slightly different than the regular season. Yeah. So what does it say about the team right now that they're able to do this? Um, what do you attribute this to, that they've become a team that can fight and a team that can win on the road? I would love to see what you're seeing because I think this is a situation where you know being around these guys every day, I'm way too close to be objective on that. To me, I just see Diego Chara. I see Diego Valeri. I see Sebastian Blanco. I see Liam Ridgewell. And it doesn't surprise me that those guys have the experience and maturity to, even though they had struggled adjusting to the challenges of the road during the regular season, to approach each new road challenge as if the past doesn't matter anymore. So to me, I just look at that and, I mean, it's not that complicated to me. But from your point of view, what are you seeing? Because I think I'm just putting too much faith in guys that I'm close to. Yeah, I mean, I think I think having players like Diego Valeri, Sebastian Blanco, Diego Chara, and Liam Ridgewell who have done this before, who have the experience, who aren't going to be intimidated or feel the pressure too much in these situations is important for any team going into playoff run. And to have the individual talent of Valeri and Blanco being able to change the game, you need players like that if you're going to go on a big run. You need people to come out and find the game tying goal with a 30 plus yard uh, magical shot from distance uh, that just happens for any team that reaches the final those kind of moments I, I think the other side of it, it it's similar to 2015 but 
you kind of have to have that proof uh, at some point that you everything you're working towards as, as a team is um, not just you don't just feel it's good, but you actually see the results. And so you see them going to Salt Lake on October 3rd and winning that game and then going back and beating Salt Lake again. It's the same as in 2015. They went to Salt Lake and then went to L.A. and got these important wins to give them confidence going to the playoffs. I, I mean, think, I think playoffs – Talent's important. Uh, you got to give the Timbers credit because they have a lot of good individual talent and they've done well this season. But it, it comes down to the teams that are in form and have confidence uh, at this time of the season. And, and I think the Timbers found that sort of tor- turning point and that confidence at the right time. And, and they've been able to ride that through the play- playoffs and, and also relied on a little bit of, ex- of the experienced players to um, come up in really big moments for them. Yeah, confidence is a great word to use there. I think... As we're talking through it now, the one thing I would point to as far as a key is just at some point in the last couple months, the guys decided to believe in themselves. There's a little bit more reporting reporting coming out about meetings that have happened. And, you know, the guys have been talking to themselves and working through their problems as the season has gone on. And I think even from the outside, you see how much better they've looked since they've shifted to and kind of settled on this formation that they've been playing ever since the first Real Salt Lake game. I don't think that it's just about the formation. I think it's about the guys being confident in each other's abilities to perform their roles in that formation that is getting them through. And, you know, that confidence plus the experience of having done this together before a lot of these guys in the core of the team or just have being a guy like Sebastian Blanco who, you know, wants to be a big game guy no matter where he's playing. And the times he hasn't, he's been placed where he's not a big name guy, is his identity doesn't really come through. It's obviously coming through here. So that confidence plus the experience, you know, it's almost a good thing that they went through those struggles in late summer and into early fall because I think it really forced them to look at each other and uh, ask what they're doing for the team, what those other people are doing for the team. And then once they all settle on the vision that they had for each other to agree to play to that vision. So who do you think, uh, this is just a mean question, but... Mean question. <laughs> I don't think it's really, there's a really good answer, but instead of just saying how great are Sebastian Blanco and Diego Larry, which one of them would you prefer in a playoff run if you had to pick one? I, I wish I could have some guarantee that neither are going to hear this. <laughs> um, probably Diego Valeri, and I think the, settle, the thing that settles it is that he has gone all the way before. He has taken this final step that's in front of the Timbers on Saturday in Atlanta. He took it in Columbus. I think also part of what makes me say Valeri, you know, the fact that he has seemingly taken it to even another level here in the postseason. And he did that that postseason, too, because it wasn't a banner year for him that year. Uh, The fact that he has consistently shown that he is somebody that's going to perform in these situations makes it more valuable than even though Sebastian Blanco has been great this postseason, it's been one postseason. So I would put my money on Valeri. What about you? Yeah, and I have to say the same thing, but that's really not trying to take too much away from Blanco. I, I think Blanco has been the, the guy that maybe can be find those bit more spectacular moments in, in really key moments, and I don't think the Timbers would be an MLS Cup without him. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, Valeri, I think, consistently raises his game to a new level in the playoffs, and we've just seen a bigger history of that. I, I mean, just the number of assistant goals he has in this playoff run and look back to 2015 – um, I, I think you have to sort of go with him, but Blanco's ability to sort of just find that magic in, in, in these huge moments. Um, yeah, the Timbers wouldn't be here without him. I mean, as big as Blanco's goal was, and it, part of the reason is the timing and part of the reason is just the pure difficulty factor. Yeah. 
Diego Valeri's goal in Dallas was just so huge because yeah. the Timbers were really under pressure throughout that whole first half hour. And then Valeri just steps up and ping, it's in. Yeah. And you see that goal, and the moment it goes in the net, in addition to thinking, wow, what a goal, you think to yourself, of course. You think to yourself, of course, because it's Diego Valeri that did that. And you have that faith that he's going to find a way to do those things whenever he gets a chance. But I think there are four players that really stand out as players that, boy, if these if these players aren't there, the Timbers can't replace them. It's Blanco, Valeri, Chiron, Ridgewell. Yeah. I mean, Atnell has been so big, but we saw Clark. I mean, for 90 minutes, Clark can be somebody that can carry you a little bit. All the other guys are important, too. Jorge Villafaña has been really important, too. But those four guys... They're, they're irreplaceable in this team. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I just think, I think even when you hear maybe some of the players talking about it, um, yeah, and just some people around the team talking about it, it does seem to always be those four guys. And then also there's these really good players, but it does really seem to be the, I think everyone around the team believes that those guys, um, with their experience, with what they've done here, um, and Blanco said it, you know, he considered, like, he, he knows that he's expected to sort of carry the team in moments and he's sort of embraced that. He doesn't feel the pressure, but he wants to be the guy that's counted on. And I think these guys recognize that they're, they are the guys that are counted on and have really embraced that role. Yeah. It's like he, uh, Sebastian Blanco, we're recording this on Tuesday. Sebastian Blanco had media availability today. He said at halftime, Dyron came up to him and just was encouraging him to actually shoot the ball and to have that kind of license to be great to try to do great things, to see people around you that are expecting you to just take a shot from 30 yards and see if it goes in. Uh, it helps with that expectation of yourself that you're supposed to be that player. So obviously there is a realization within the team of what each other should be and a realization of what they can count on each other uh, to do. Um, you know, one thing that we're seeing ahead of this game on Saturday, not to fast forward too much, is just... A lot of people picking Atlanta, even in the face of Portland's resiliency against Seattle and Kansas City, who probably came into the postseason as two of the top four teams in the league. Do you still think that Portland, in the face of all these predictions, is being a little bit overlooked? Yeah, I mean, I think they probably are being a little bit overlooked. I, I think it makes sense that Atlanta is the favorite in this game. I, I think it would be pretty crazy for them not to be the favorite given the year they had. They were runner ups, runners up to the supporter shield. They got 69 points when the Timbers have 56. Um, and they are playing at home, a place they've only lost twice this year. And by the way, both those losses were when they went down 10 men. So they really don't lose their <laughs> unless they get a bad red card, it seems like. Um, Atlanta should be the favorite in this game. But I, I actually think the underdog label is not a bad thing. I think part of building that cohesion when it's you against the world kind of thing, I think that helps a lot to unite the locker room when they feel like they're the only ones that believe in themselves. And I think it takes a little bit of pressure off them. Atlanta is expected to win this game. Um, if Portland goes in there and wins, that will be considered an ups upset. And uh, so I think it puts a little bit more pressure on Atlanta to go out there and get the job done that everyone expects them to do. Um, yeah, I, I think the Timbers, in any single game, the Timbers are capable of beating any team in this league, including Atlanta. I, I think it makes sense to their favorite, but it, would be, it, would be, it wouldn't be smart to completely overlook the Timbers, especially what they've done with this playoff run. I completely agree. Well, the reason I wanted to jump to that is because I think there's an interesting debate to be had right now between the value of talent. Timbers are clearly talented, particularly as we're seeing with the upper end of their roster with these elite players that we're talking about, and the value of unity and cohesion, which is something that 
clearly throughout this year has been a theme for Giovanni Savarese in his first team involved, uh, first year involved with this team. And as we just alluded to, everybody knowing their place in the team speaks to the unity of it. How do you how do you think that balance ideally should work? Would you rather have a team that leans a little bit towards being talented or a team that leans a little bit toward being cohesive? I think I you I think you'd want a team that leans a little bit towards being cohesive, but but I think the key word there is leans because if you don't have a, a certain level of talent to begin with, all that cohesion is not going to really matter. Um, but yeah, I, I think ultimately that's sort of what carries a team for it to make a San Francisco baseball reference, which I'm sure oh, everyone boy. really cares about. I ate with the Giants. The Giants weren't that good in the end of the Barry Bonds era when Barry Bonds was a superstar and just hitting a bunch of home runs. And then they went away from that and became the misfit underdogs um, with in 2010 that were united, a, a sort of them against the world that no, everyone counted out, and they go on and win the World Series and then win three times in five years. So... <laughs> That's the analogy that's always in the, my back back of my mind. Can we make a basketball analogy now? <laughs> oh, we would still be talking Bay Area stuff, though, if we did that. Yeah. Yeah. So can we pick a sport <laughs> where we don't have to talk about your neck of the woods so much? <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of great stories in the Bay Area. But, no, I, I mean, I, I do think in any playoff run, uh, I, I think what sets teams apart when you're, on, when you're sort of on this playing field where most teams are talented, they wouldn't even get this far without that talent. I, I think ultimately what sets a team apart is that unity, that cohesion, and that belief. Um, and so I, I think as long as you're saying leaning and, you know, not really picking between the two, but recognizing this team's talented, but they also are leaning towards having more unity than the other team. Yeah, I I think that would be the preference. I I completely agree with you. I think there is a tendency to, at least in my opinion, reverse the equation and think that winning means that people are talented. But I don't necessarily think that. Like, I don't think winning is proof of talent. I think winning is proof of a lot of things. And you just go sport to sport. I think that in most professional sports in this country, teams are pretty evenly matched, which is why, to use a basketball example, <laughs> the, a team like the Warriors can just change their coach from Mark Jackson to Steve Kerr, and all of a sudden they go to being one of the best teams of all time because the elements that he added didn't have anything to do with talent. Yeah. I think the same thing with the Timbers. Like you look around at Major League Soccer, Atlanta maybe has the most talented team, but I honestly think with the right mentality, with the right culture, with the right preparation, there are probably 12 or 14 teams in Major League Soccer that have enough talent to compete with the Timbers and Atlanta United. So I think it's a testament to both of those teams that they're here because as much as on podcasts and in my analysis, sometimes I just kind of go, Atlanta's so talented. There are teams like the Galaxy that are talented that just didn't do anything this year. Yeah, and I actually, on Atlanta, I mean, you've heard Giovanni Sarresti talk about this week. He feels like they've sort of evolved even in this playoff run. Oh, yeah. Um, as we as we get a little bit more into our preview. Um, but, yeah, they've evolved a little bit in this playoff run. You know, they, they, had, they closed out the regular season by blowing their opportunity of getting the supporter shield, and I think that was a disappointment for them, but in a way was what they needed to sort of refocus yeah. and – going to the playoff run with a different mentality. And I, I think as much as talent, um, a little bit of a shift for them ha- has helped them in this playoff run. Absolutely. I, I've spent a lot of time over the last three or four days looking at Atlanta. 
they're relying on a different formation than a lot of people would remember from them when Portland was last in Atlanta. Atlanta played with a four-back system. Now they're playing with a five-back yeah. system. I, I think a lot of the characteristics that people might infer kind of loosely from a team that has a Darlington Nagby and a Miguel Almiron and a, a Josef Martinez, uh, they're not really there. They have different. They have very different ways of playing. They have responded to how the league has responded to them, and as a result, I think they're in some ways when you're talking about a one-off game, a much more dangerous team because you have to prepare for essentially two or three different teams with Atlanta at this point because they're just so adept at playing different ways. Let's not get too much into Saturday yet because Jamie, you got some information today about some lingering injury issues for Portland, although. As I'm transitioning into this question, I realize for both these teams, it's actually kind of cool that neither have major injury concerns going into this one. We're going to get two pretty healthy teams. Yeah. Um, I, I think on the Timbers' side, uh, the questions were Larry Smabiala and also Samuel Armenteros. I've seen Samuel Armenteros coming off of, uh, out of training. We haven't asked specifically about him. I don't think he's really a factor no matter what. I, I mean, I guess there's a chance he would be in the 18, um, but... I think that question sort of just fall into the way uh, fallen aside since it just um, he just hasn't played a role for the Timbers recently. So that yeah, yeah, that one's not, I I think, as critical. Um, But Mabiala is is obviously a big question. How critical is Larry's Mabiala? (laughs) Go on record here. You made me decide between Blanco and Valeri. I think it would be safe to say, you know, Maviala over Bill Tuiloma because we've seen him all year and he's been in the 11. But tell me, how critical is Larry Maviala's health to Saturday's success? I, I mean, I think it could be huge. I, I think Bill Tuiloma has done well, um, but he doesn't have the experience. And I don't know if he has, you know, he's done really well recently, but I don't know if I am confident enough that he has the consistency that Larry Maviala brings. Uh, have you told um, Bill this? <laughs> oh, my gosh. What's he going to think? You've lost confidence in him. I, I mean, I have not lost confidence in him, but I would much prefer to see Larry Smobiala in a game against Atlanta United, the best attacking team in Major League Soccer. He is the only timber that has scored against Atlanta United yeah, this that year. Yeah, that is true. That is also true. Uh, so maybe on those set pieces, he could be a game changer there. Uh Tim, uh, Giovanni Savaresi said that Mabiala trained, uh, did the majority of training today, was going to be in full training tomorrow, and he said he was likely to be uh, fit to play on Saturday. So mm-hmm. that, I think, is huge for the Timbers. I, Which I, is actually as glowing a endorsement yeah. as you're going to get somebody's fitness situation uh, yeah. from Gio. So I'm pretty confident after that discussion. And I, I just think the experience of Mobial and Ridgewell next to each other in a big game like this against such a good attacking team could be make could make a huge difference in the game because containing um, Martinez, uh, containing Almiron, finding a way to not let Atlanta just um, get a string of goals in a row or something like that is going to be so important to the Timbers' success in this game. And I think the veteran experience in a game of this magnitude is crucial. Yeah, those two are still allowing less than a goal per ninety minutes when they play together. And um, after last game. Bill and Liam's totals went up a little bit. It's still pretty good, but the numbers, in addition to our eye tests, in addition to the coaches' choices, tell you that uh, even if this plate is out to not be a significant difference, they feel like it could potentially be a significant difference. So having Larry Smabiala back uh, means that both teams will be at full strength if that actually happens, which means we can go into talking about Saturday's game. Jamie, one thing we need to establish, we've already alluded to this a little bit, we need to establish how good we think Atlanta United is, because based on the punditry out there, 
they're talking about Atlanta United as if not to bring this team up for the second time in the show. They're talking about Atlanta United as if they're the Golden State Warriors and anybody <laughs> who's going into a final with them are destined to come up against one of the greatest teams of all time. Atlanta is very, very good. <laughs> really? Uh, they finished second in their conference in the regular season. Yeah, they finished second in the conference. And like we said, with them sort of evolving and taking it maybe even to a new level in this playoff run, they then went on to not only beat the Supporter Shield winner, but not even let it be close. Um, and you can you can kind of talk hmm. about the Red Bulls, like uh, how they approached that first leg and whether they made some mistakes, but... Uh, that series was over pretty quickly. Hmm. I don't know why you're... <laughs> I, think that's, I think that first leg was way closer than people remember. Maybe and for like... Maybe in the beginning, but it, qui- I definitely mean, it quickly got out Definitely for the first 30 minutes. Hand. And then yeah. those two goals were late. So even for most of that first leg, it's looking pretty good. And then kind of the bottom line is for more than half of that series, it wasn't close. But I think if you go back and look at the first 60 or 70 minutes of that game, there are a lot of reasons... For people who support an organized team to think that they can play on even ground with Atlanta. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think something Atlanta has been really good at is sort of finding goals in quick succession. So if the Timbers, you know, lose focus or let Atlanta get on the board, it's very it's possible that Atlanta can then punish you again and again. And suddenly a 0-0 game turns into a 3-0 game. Um, they've been very good at at sort of getting on these rolls in the attack and and you see like a string of goals and not too much time. Uh, so they're a very, very dangerous team, but yeah, I I mean, the Timbers showed a, they've got a one, one draw there. They, I think are capable of competing with Atlanta. Um, but I I think like you said, the change of formation seems to have helped them. They seem to have their mentality in the right spot right now. Um, probably the best it's been all season and, and, yeah, they're a very good team. This is going to be a very tough game. It's not impossible, and I, I think that's what's a little bit unfair is people are sort of building this up as if it would be an impossible uh, feat for the Timbers to overcome Atlanta, uh, but it's going to be tough. Yeah, I think probably what I'm looking at out there is a lot of people just kind of going, whew, Atlanta's good. They're going to beat Portland, and not really putting like the time into it to really think it out a bit. And at that point, I think it does get a little bit disrespectful of Portland because a lot of people are just looking at Atlanta, looking at their talent level. They've got great players and automatically going, like for two years, this team has been really impressive. They're going to win on Saturday too. And it's not even stopping to think about, okay, what would Diego Valeri, what does does Sebastian Blanco, Chara, Ridgewell, what does the actual matchups, what are the tactics, what do the styles mean? And that's where I think that fuels a little bit of what the players are talking about when they're like, hey, nobody's picking us. That's true. And I don't even think that's inappropriate. I mean, it's very appropriate to pick Atlanta United here. I don't, I don't think anybody should be derided for that. What's inappropriate is to not even take the time to give the Timbers a chance. And I think that's where the line is between somebody making a concerted pick this weekend and coming up with Atlanta and some people that are just disregarding Portland's chances altogether. Uh, but kind of going back to the June 24th game, both teams played different shapes at that time. Yeah. Atlanta was in a 4-2-3-1. The Timbers played their 5-3-2, kind of stacking their strikers up top, Armenteros above Valeri. Sebastian Blanco was playing in central midfield in that game. Uh, so the Timbers are going to go back to that, right? <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I don't think so. I, I think that the Timbers have found something that has worked, and they're going to want to stick with it. Obviously, against an Atlanta team, I, I think there might be um, sort of – there might be a reason to think, oh, well, maybe they should try to go more defensive. Uh, it worked in June. It worked for a draw in June. I, I mean, I, the Timbers have to find a way to win this game. I, mm-hmm. I think that the circumstances are a little bit different. And, and I think 
given how well the Timbers have done in the 4-2-3-1 formation and where that puts certain players like Blanco on the field, I, I think it probably would be a mistake to try to move away from that at, at this point. Maybe tweak certain elements of it, try to um, create, uh, make themselves a little bit unpredictable for Atlanta, but I don't see them going back to that 5-3-2 uh, that we saw in June. And, and like you said, Atlanta has a different formation too, so I, I think this is going to be a very different game. Wait, so Atlanta has to play Portland's formation, and Portland has to play Atlanta's from June 24th? <laughs> is this like the new yeah. rule in MLS? Like when you get to a cup final, you have to play the other team's formation. Uh, apparently. Wow, that's that's pretty crazy. <laughs> I, you know, I think both teams are going to look at the other's recent tape. I think a lot of people are wondering, oh, what formation is Portland going to play? Because a lot of people don't follow one team that much except for their own. So they know Portland changes formations a lot except for these last two months. And Atlanta, well, Atlanta has multiple different ways they can play except for recently where they've been playing kind of the same way and they play this way. I mean, Portland has played a 5-3-2 at various points in this playoffs when they're protecting leads or substitutions have happened like in the Seattle game. Um, and they've had to just play that way. And Atlanta has shifted their shape too. But I think we kind of know not only how these teams are going to look, but who they're going to start. And in that way, it's just going to come down to who has the best game plan and the best execution against the other. Uh, so what is the way that the Timbers are going to have the best game plan and the best execution? <laughs> how, how are the Timbers going to win this game? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think within the four two three one, and even though it's not as defensive as a, as a five back, the Timbers still have to stay organized on defense. That's going to be really important they can't lose focus they I, I i do not think they would survive a half they had at, like they had at kansas city uh, against atlanta because i think atlanta wouldn't only score one goal uh, I, I just think they're just too good in the attack to to be limited to one goal if the timbers come out as flat as they did mm-hmm. in kansas city so I, I think the timbers really have to be focused throughout this game they have to have a game plan which I, i'm sure they will to contain almarone and martinez and try to limit their influence as much as possible in the game. If, if they can uh, kind of put themselves in a position where those players aren't being as Im- impactful as they can, I, I think that puts them in a really good chance to win this game. Um, I, I think the Timbers can use the counterattack to their advantage. The, Atlanta still has a pretty good defense too, even though everyone's always talking about their attack. But the Timbers have, like we've talked about, some individual talent that can absolutely score goals and um, something like the counterattack, I think for both teams could end up being pretty important. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I think the biggest thing that it comes down to is sort of what role does Martinez and Amarone play in this game and what can the Timbers do to t- kind of take those players out of this match? Uh, yeah, you have to start there. I think after you think about that, you have to think about how Darlington Nagby is going to get involved. He's usually the third person into attack. If it's not him, it's Julian Gressel. I mean, that's, that's a great attacking force him right there. And for me, when I'm watching Atlanta play, you look at the stylistic changes they've had this year. They are willing to go a little bit more direct. They're responding to how teams have prepped for them. They're willing to go a little bit more direct. They're getting their wingbacks forward and playing direct to them a lot. I think that'll be a big question for the Timbers. Do they want Polo and Blanco tracking those wingbacks all the way back into defense? Or are they going to pass them on to whoever starts at fullback? If that's the case, then... The defense gets stretched a little bit wide as they're accounting for those players. That leaves more space for Almiron to pop into. Leaves more space for Nagby and Gressel to pop into. The interesting thing about Atlanta is that they offer you a lot of different ways to approach how to play them. I know a lot of people derided the Red Bulls for not pressing them like the Red Bulls did at Red Bull Arena earlier this year. But you go back and look at the first 30 minutes of the game, the Red Bulls had control over that. Not control, but it was on even footing. And it was only Tim Parker misjudging a cross that changed the game. Um, If the Timbers 
I asked Giovanni Savarese about this a little bit today, and um, as a good media guy he is, he kind of dodged the question a little bit. I, I would have too, <laughs> to say, hey, looking back at that 30, first 30 minutes of that Eastern Conference semifinals, what'd you, what did you think? Because you look back at that, Atlanta didn't have a good chance during that whole time. And that game didn't get broken open until Tim Parker misjudged across. Uh, Michael Murillo didn't help out. Joseph Martinez kind of took a heavy touch on that cross, and Luis Robles is a little bit slow off of his line. I mean, if New York executes differently in that moment, goals change games, goals change series, and that series is totally different. So I would be encouraged by that if I were the Timbers coaching staff. Do you want to go to some listener questions? Yeah. Or do you yeah. want to talk to Nat first? I know you're excited about the Nat thing. <laughs> no, let's get some listener questions. Jamie, I want you to go on record now. Would you prefer to talk to our listeners or would you prefer <laughs> to listen to yourself talk to Nat Borchers? I think right now let's uh, let's listen to some of the listener questions. Okay. We'll ask you this one first. It's from Mark. Mark says, since we are playing on a football field, will Powell start? It seems like that's what Gio has done in the past. I mean, I, I got multiple questions on whether they thought I thought Powell would start in, makes sense in this to ask that game. After, yeah. um, after Thursday, it makes sense to yeah, ask that. Yeah, and it, it's a big field. Um, Powell, obviously, going forward, you know, adds something. I just don't see Geo switching away from the the back line that he's had in this game when he's sort of been sticking with the same back line for the most part through the playoff run and the experience that Valentin brings and, and sort of the consistency defensively overall. I, I think it's an interesting question. I, I think teams have sort of targeted Valentin at times during this playoff run, um, but I would still be, be surprised at making a big switch like that at this point. Yeah, I don't know what Gio's going to do, but I would start Valentin. I think a lot of the struggle that we saw from Valentin on Thursday was the fact that when a team is playing against you in a 4-3-3, your fullbacks are going to be matched directly against the other team's wingers most of the time. And Daniel Shallow is good. Daniel Shallow has a lot of physical advantages on Derek Valentin. I think, uh, Zer- sorry, Zarek, not Derek. Who the hell is Derek <laughs> Valentin? Uh, but has some physical advantages on Zarek. And, you know, most times when Zarek has a one-on-one matchup of this league, he's going to be at a physical disadvantage. He makes up for it in other ways. In... Atlanta system, there is no real one-on-one matchup for Zarek Valentin. They don't play with wingers. To the extent there is a one-on-one matchup, it's going to be against Greg Garza, their left wing back coming forward. I think given that, this gives Zarek Valentin's intelligence, his ability to organize his team, his communication, a chance to be his greatest contribution. And I would, I personally would start Zarek Valentin. Let's go to Heath. Heath asks, what do you feel is the most interesting storyline in the lead-up to this final? Nagby versus Portland? Ticket allocation? Portland underdog heroics? Or something else? I think probably the most interesting storyline is sort of the underdog storyline just because it gives you the opportunity to sort of think back to this run the Timbers have had and the excitement of all of this. Um, I, you know, Nagby versus Portland is definitely going to be an uh, storyline going to this game. Uh, but I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it. It just... It just it's. It's, it's an know. interesting storyline, but it's a storyline without conflict. Yeah. Because I'm, I don't know that anybody views it as like a conflict, other than the fact that two teams have to play each other for one goal. Yeah. But usually, when there's like a oh this versus that, as far as a personal level, there's like a story. There's a tension. I, I don't really view it that way. I mean, I just don't see Darlington Nagby as somebody that's sitting around thinking for hours on this. So <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, it'll be different to see him in an Atlanta uniform at MLS cup after, you know, watching 2015. But, um, for me, the underdog storyline, it's been one of the most interesting things going into this game. Uh, just because I, I think there are a lot of talking points as we've sort of talked about during this podcast that, um, 
that that you can sort of get to when you when you look at that because it, it's not as simple as Timbers are the underdog, Atlanta's better. We'll see if they can beat the odds. You know, for me, whichever team wins this title, it's going to be it's going to be really important in a way that a lot of titles aren't important. If Atlanta wins it, it's the coronation of a organization that seems to have been destined to be the flagship of MLS since the moment they opened the gates for the first time and started letting all those fans in. So for them to produce a championship in year two and to see their talent acquisition, all of the money they've put into their program there pay off so quickly, I think that will that will make them, in a way, a standard bearer for the league if they aren't already one. And for the Timbers, you know, thanks to somebody writing about this, <laughs> there's this big question as to whether the Timbers are elite or not. Are they an elite organization? <laughs> uh, Merritt Paulson has been on podcasts talking about it. Um, people have been pedof- pettifogging your headline at uh, OregonLive.com. <laughs> Look, if you win two titles in four years and then finish first in another, uh, finish first in your conference in another of those years that you didn't win a title, you're an elite organization. Can you say that if the, if the Timbers don't win the title? I'm not sure. I think it leaves it open to debate. The debate ends if the Timbers win on Saturday. And I think for a market the size of Portland and for a fan base that is so huge, that that would be a pretty big thing to be able to say. Yeah, so I, I think that um, they may go. <laughs> sort, of, sort of touches on what we've been talking about because it's sort of the underdog thing. Can we accept, He says, can we accept that the Portland Timbers are actually a good team and not just this lucky underdog that's been able to make this run? Uh, have you been seeing people still say that the Timbers are lucky? I mean, you know, I haven't seen that much. I've seen the underdog thing, but I don't know if the... I honestly don't know that if people have been saying the word lucky. Like, okay. oh, they just got lucky to go through this. Uh, maybe maybe there it is around a little bit more. But I, I think it's been more about, oh, they're the underdog. How did they accomplish this? That was unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not giving them as much credit that they deserve. Uh, but yeah, I'm not sure if I've seen people actually saying that they're lucky at this point. So... Against Dallas, they were never down. Against Seattle, they were down for a little while in the first leg because Seattle got that opening goal. And then they were on the brink of elimination for, what uh, was it, like 10 minutes in the second leg when Raul Ruiz scored to give them the way goal edge. So they they were ahead for most of the time there, or at least in control. Not control, but not behind. And then against Kansas City, there were from between the 19th minute and... Uh, Sebastian Blanco scored in the 52nd or something like that? I think 53? so, yeah. So during that time, they looked on the edge of elimination. But it's not like Portland has been down for large swaths of these playoffs and just scraping through. And I just don't see the luck involved in it. And I think uh, I think anybody watching these games knows it's not lucky. I think you can sit here and question, why does Diego Valeri keep stepping up? Why does Sebastian Blanco keep stepping up at just the right times? But that's a skill. That's not luck of them doing that. Uh, let's go on to Tim. You, you get to be coach for the game. Oh, God, I, that team is in a bad shape then. Uh, <laughs> what one move would you make to improve the chances of victory? So what yeah, one move so would you make? I don't know if I have a good answer for this one. Um, hmm. I think that the Timbers have you know, done pretty well at, at figuring out what they're good at in this playoff run and it'd be finding a way to set a game plan for every team. Um, I think this is why Giovanni Savaresi is the coach because he's probably thinking about exactly what 
uh, one thing they need to do or two things they need to do or three things they need to do to improve their chances of victory. I, I'd like to hear your perspective, Richard. No, I think this isn't about Portland. I mean, I'm going to have the same answer as you, but I don't look at Atlanta and say, oh, this is what I would change about them. I, usually teams that make it this far in a league where the talent is relatively even are the teams that have the less, the fewest flaws. So uh, while I think it's a boring answer to say, oh, I wouldn't change anything on Potentially, people can look at me like, oh, he's, of course, he's not going to criticize Gio. Uh, I think the fact is that teams usually don't make it to this final step unless they've got almost all of their ducks in order, almost they've made almost all the correct decisions. I mean, like the first questioner asked, I think there's there's something to be said about the debate between Alvis Powell and Zarek Valentin, for example. Um, I wouldn't fault anybody for siding either way in that debate, but. I don't know if there's necessarily just a right choice there as much as there is a stylistic choice. But yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason the team is here is because the team has made, has been proven to have made the right decisions. Uh, so this one's, let's go to, wait, let's go to Michael. You want to go to Michael first? Yeah, I was about to skip to David. Let's go Michael first. Uh, which players will play their final match as Timbers in Atlanta? Wow, man. Celebrate. Thanks. Um, <laughs> Ridgewell, Milano, Espria, Powell, others, question mark. You know, I, the, the the sad thing is it's going to happen so quickly. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's going to be like the game and then the, maybe the next day or something. I mean, that's what it was at MLS Cup in yeah. 2015. So for people that don't know, the expansion draft's next week. Yeah. The options for these teams for both Atlanta and Portland, I think, have to be exercised by Monday, which means they're, which then leads to the expansion protection. I think, I think it's in. Sunday, honestly. I think it's Sunday, but I think they're they like might, supposed to be announced on Monday. Yeah, I mean, like they, yeah, they might not announce it Sunday, but I think they have to inform the league by less than like 24 hours after MLS Cup what they're planning on doing. Yeah, I mean, and look, don't think that these general managers are sitting are going to be sitting there Sunday morning making decisions. Gavin Williams has already made his decisions. The, the decision makers in Atlanta have already made their decisions about this. I mean, it sucks that, you know, the timing of this has to be so weird, but they know, what's, they know what they're going to do with their squads for next year. Uh, and in that sense, uh, we already know what the answer to your question is, or we don't know what the answer to your question is, but Michael, but some people do. Um, as far as people that will be here and won't be here, you know, it's just not something that I'm, I'm just to be completely transparent with you guys. It's not something that I feel comfortable commenting on. Well, I think... Okay, I, I don't I don't think Ridgewell is going to come back. I, I think oh he's done really well, and I actually it, it, that's a hard um, thing to say at this point, given how well he's done. But I, I if it's an option on his contract year, which I, I think that's probably what it is, I, I'm not sure that the amount of money they would have to take on that option. But he would explicitly make sense. told you he has another year in his contract. He said that. Um, we've heard. Different. Are you breaking news here? No, I mean, he said he had another year on his contract. Okay. He said so, there was going to be discussions at the end of the year. Have I you heard, I mean, not to berate you on this, I, hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm berating you. I just, I really want to know, do you have somebody who's a better source than Liam Ridgewell that is telling no. you? Okay. Because I mean, I like, it's possible that Liam is mischaracterizing the nature yeah, of his no, deal. No, no, so. I'm, I'm, I'm saying if it's an option, if it's not an option, even so, I, I think it still is, is a discussion. So yeah. no matter what it is, we know that it's not, he's not completely out of contract. We don't know the exact details of the contract contract is the point I'm making. Um, but no matter what it is, I, I mean, he implied there's going to be a discussion with um, him and, and Gio. And if he doesn't, if they don't see him as a long-term option, or if they don't see him as a guy that's going to come here and play all, and start all year next year, that he doesn't want to necessarily come back. And, and so whatever that means in terms of the contract, I, I think that would be figured out. I'm just not sure what the amount of money the Timbers are spending on Ridgewell if both sides sort of agree 
to maybe this isn't the best choice and Ridgewell's okay with that, which sounds like if he's not going to play, he doesn't want to be here anyways. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, he's just had so many injuries and he's been in and out of the lineup and the Timbers are paying too much for the amount of time he's playing at this point. Um, but again, I, you know, the con, the fact that we don't have the exact contract and I wish we had, you know, the exact contract of every player, I think they would make us be able to make more informed decisions if we actually knew the details of every player's contract, which Mm -hmm. they don't release in MLS. Um, but I think it's very possible that it's his last game. Um, I don't really know about Espriel. Again, I don't know the status of his contract, but I think if he's at a situation where he's out of contract or there's an option that might make sense to look elsewhere because I, I think with the amount of money they're spending, they might be able to find someone who can be more of a consistent goal scorer. I think if the Timbers can renegotiate the amount that Milano's making, it seems like they wanted to see if he could potentially, you know, fit in with the team over time. Um, but again, I, I think that comes down to what that contract would look like. Mm-hmm. I think Powell's up in the air too. I, I, it's, it's really hard to tell without knowing exactly who's in and out of contract, who has options, what are the actual yeah. options for bringing or not bringing back these players uh, to make sort of super informed decisions on who's going to be gone. And to be honest, that is actually the main reason why I don't want to comment on this. I don't mind saying whether I think that Lucas Milano should come back for another year. Well, I, I'm not going to be so blunt about it. Um, but, you know, we've talked about Armenteros. We've talked about Adi when that was happening. I have no problem commenting on these things. But the problem is me commenting on these things sometimes reveals information that isn't in the public. And uh, I don't know if it's my my right to be telling people contract details that aren't in the public. Uh, you know, but surrounding Ridgewell, you talked about the whole issue of the guy's got a high cap number. Well, not a high cap number. He's making a lot of money. And it's capped out at a certain uh, level, the way MLS works, but he's not the only guy in that situation. We've yeah. talked about Armenteros before. Milano is in that situation, too. I think there are a couple of other people who you can look at the figures that are on Major League Soccer Player Association website and go, is this guy value for money? And that is the decision that every general manager has to make with every player, not only every offseason, but every time a transfer window is open, every time a trade comes up. So the list that Michael gave, there are clearly some players on that list. And I think that you know, if Gavin Wilkinson wasn't thinking about those things, he wouldn't be doing his job. And I think at this point, we know Gavin Wilkinson is pretty good at his job. Last question before we go to this interview that Jamie is itching to get to. Uh, David asks, thoughts on the Burhalter pick? So for people that don't know, it became official yesterday. Uh, finally became official what we all kind of knew. Greg Burhalter, former coach of Columbus Crew SC, is now the head coach of the United States men's national team. I think it's a great pick. Yeah, I, I think it's a great pick. I think a lot of people wanted this to be revealed earlier. It took a very long time. Oh, I think I'm so I, tired of talking assuming about that, you know, the fact that he was coaching the crew and wanted to finish the season probably had to do with it. Um, yeah, there of was, course. <laughs> I think there's a people make it sound like um, why in the world did they wait this long? It, it, it sort of so makes of perfect ta- sense. I'm so sick of the talk around this. Uh, also, I love how for months people are sitting on Twitter, and they're still on Twitter going, why didn't they interview people? And then it comes out a week ago, they did interview Oscar Pereja in addition to Greg Berhalter. It just shows how little we know about this process. And if you want to express frustration at not the tra- process not being more transparent and you not knowing more about it, fair enough. But clearly people were assuming the whole time that they had only interviewed one candidate or weren't going to interview more candidates. And I see why they assume that because U.S. soccer kind of hinted that's what they were going to do. But come on, once once it comes out that they also interviewed Oscar Pereja, don't you take a step back and go, hey, maybe some of the information that's out there about this, we, we, didn't, know, we didn't know enough. 
Either way, the only thing that I have to say as far as something negative regarding Greg Berhalter is that I'm going to miss him being in a place where he coaches more than 16 or 18 games a year. I think the guy's really great. I love watching his teams play. I love hearing about what he does. I love just reading about his curiosity for the game. And so him going into the international world, that's my only regret about it. Yeah, I think I think it's a great choice. I think any coach that makes this jump, it, there's sometimes a transition and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. So mm. I, I don't think there's any guarantee here um, as with any coach going to the national team, but I think this is the right pick for U.S. soccer. Absolutely, uh, or, or at least one of the right picks. And speaking of one of the right picks, there were a lot of people that Jamie Goldberg could have had on this show to not only talk about 2018's final, but to rekindle memories of 2015 and also offer some perspective on just timbers, life in t- the Timbers in general, and she picked one of the best ones out there. Uh, before we listen to this clip from Nat Borchers, what was your highlight from this interview? I... <laughs> I think people should listen, but I, I think that... Well, I'm um, not saying like, hey, just listen to Jimmy <laughs> talk about it, then fast forward. Yeah, I know, that's true. Uh, you know, it is um, interesting from Nat's perspective, looking sort of from the outside in versus being a player. Um, he, he can draw a lot of similarities between 15 and this year with the camaraderie, with the way the team came together. Um, but but I, I do think it's really interesting to hear, as everyone will, sort of how he analyzes how this team got here and... Um, how he sort of views their trajectory from now sort of a different perspective than, than he's ever been in before. Well, I have to edit that one up. So you're going to listen to the product of my edit. Uh, here's Nat Borchers talking to Jamie Goldberg. So now we want to, we want to welcome in uh, Nat Borchers. Um, Nat, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jamie, for having me. Always excited to talk to you. Yeah, so we've talked to you on the show before, but it hasn't been, uh, you know, since I, I think since your playing career uh, finished. So we've really, I think, only talked to you as a player before. I, I first kind of just wanted to get your perspective as what it's been like uh, following this run um, this year, except this time as a as a analyst, as, as a reporter instead. Yeah, it, it's been fascinating. To be honest with you, to to be on this side of the broadcast. Uh, to to watch the team from uh, not really the outside looking in, but definitely from a different perspective. Uh, you know, you, you look at this team and you see the ups and downs they've gone through. As a broadcaster, you try to stay unbiased, but certainly with all the relationships I still have in the locker room, it's difficult too. So you, you kind of go on the roller coaster with the team and, uh, you know, you get to this point in the season and you're like, it's not really a shock to me that they've done so well. Just, you know, because I've watched them so closely and I've seen how, how close the group is and I've seen how, how well they can play and, and what their potential is. So it's been really, really fun uh, to be on this side. Yeah, so you've, uh, I mean, it's probably a different, I mean, it's completely a different perspective, but it's sort of, do you see things differently? I think you maybe touched on a little bit with the camaraderie and things like that, but are, are there things you see just sort of watching somewhat from the outside in um, that you might not have recognized in your own playoff run, uh, MLS Cup run in 2015. Absolutely. And I, I would have to say that, that there are you know, certain players on this team, uh, you know, Diego Valeri, Diego Chara, you know, Liam Ridgewell, um, that, that are uh, players that every single team in this league would love to have, that would start for every other team, that would, uh, you know, be contributors in, in their own unique ways. Uh, and that really elevate this club and, and, and the team to different levels. And I, I would actually include Sebastian Blanco 
you know, in that discussion. And, and you know, they're just special players, and, and they have these unique uh, attributes about them that when it comes to playoff time, when it comes to big-time games, they just show up. And I didn't, I guess I, I didn't really recognize that as much when I was uh, with the team in 2015 because, you know, I was just a part of the team. But now, you know, looking outside, looking in, it's like, wow, you know, those guys are really special. And that's what, you know, has dropped them so much success. We talked about this recently, but I wanted to ask you sort of what similarities you see between uh, this team in 2015, because obviously I assume, you know, 2015 has to be in your mind a little bit in this during this run as well. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, as we talked about, I think it was, um, you know, two different things for me, really, uh, maybe even a third. But the, the first thing, you know, is, is that belief and that, um, you know, that, that Gio has a plan. Uh, you know, he, he it took him, you know, uh, uh, a whole season to really figure out what his team is about, who performs, uh, you know, at, at what position um, and where, obviously, uh, is best for them. But, He's he's basically figured it out, and now he's sold them on the belief that hey, you know, I can I can take you to the championship game. I, I can, you know, you can win with this system we're playing. Um, you know, with the trainings that we set up for you, you guys can flourish and, and uh, be good pros. And, and uh, you know, basically sold them, you know, his, his uh, you know what he does, how he coaches, and, and I think secondarily. Uh, you look at the camaraderie, the group, and I remember in 2015 just how close we were as a unit, especially, you know, towards the end of the season when we had to win games. Um, you know, that's when you find out the true character of the team is when you have big-time games such as, uh, you know, the game, you know, uh, knockout round game in Dallas for this crew. And for us, I think it was, you know, we, we went to – it was a way to, to Columbus um, actually in the regular season. It was one of those must-win games. Uh, we went there. Uh, you know, we, we played uh, the group that, uh, you know, Caleb was most comfortable with. Um, and, you know, we ended up getting a result. And that that game, you know, really provided inspiration for us uh, to know that, hey, you know, when, when we need to get a result, we need to buckle down. We know how to do it. And that's, that's what this team can do. And you see it, you know, in – different moments in games, I think the big one for me is, okay, when they go down a goal, how do they respond? And I think earlier in the season, uh, you know, when they were struggling um, or, you know, in that latter uh, stretch when they struggled a little bit, they would go down a goal and uh, they wouldn't be able to come back. But in this iteration of the team this season, uh, they go down a goal and they're able to come back. And I think that shows the character uh, of the of the group. How, that, that character, that that belief is sort of this X factor. It's hard to, you know, uh, it, it's easy to talk about tactics or individual talent, but uh, from your perspective as someone who was a player, I, I mean, how does that sort of happen where, where it, you find, because obviously it's so important to play off run, but how does it happen that you're able to, you know, cultivate that belief in a locker room, especially, you know, right before a playoff run? Yeah, it's a good question. And, again, I think I go back to, you know, what's different about this team, what makes this team special. You know, you look at those those four players I mentioned, you know, Blanco, um, Diego Valeri, Diego Tra, um, Liam Ridgewell. Those guys have a ton of character. And then you, you sprinkle that in with guys like Alvis Powell, Zareth Valentin, you know, Jeff Atanella, 
um, Andy Polo, you know, you watch these guys on the field, but then you, you look at them off the field and, you know, they're, they're good people. They, they obviously, um, you know, want to be, uh, you know, want to win. Uh, they, they enjoy each other's company. If you watch this group, um, you know, having a team meal together. Or if you watch this group, um, you know, going, uh, to do something outside of soccer, they're, they're, you know, they're having fun. And uh, you don't get that with a lot of, of teams, and, and certainly with the diversity uh, and the background of the group, um, you, you think that there'd be a lot of different um, clicks, and you know sometimes there are in a lot of teams, but this team just seems a little bit tighter. And you know I think it comes again back to those those players who are the backbone. You know they're good, good people, they have good character, and that really bleeds into a team. And then you add you know Geo on top of that. Uh, you know he's brought a different ethos. A different method to working the group um, that was different from Caleb Porter certainly, and you can you can just see that you know it, it's worked for this group. If you have especially you know on the sideline, you probably you don't you don't have to be in the game in these uh, really big moments at this point. But do you have a favorite moment from that perspective from being able to watch this playoff run? Um, a, a favorite moment that stands out to you so far from the run? Yeah, I mean, it would have to be, uh, you know, I think there's just a couple of them. You know, I, I think, you know, when you look at each, you know, each of the three series that have been played, you know, in the knockout round uh, against Dallas, you look at the uh, series against Seattle, and then you look at the most recent one against Kansas City. There's been moments that, that for me, have defined this team, and, and the first one would be Dallas uh, when they go down, when Laris Mabiala gets sent off. Uh, and the team's got to ride out, uh, you know, the, the next you know, 30 minutes, you know, down the man trying to get a result. Uh, that was tough. Um, but, you know, they succeeded and it showed a lot of character defensively. And then you look at the, you know, the Seattle series and, um, you know, I certainly look at, uh, the, the Gold Blanco scores, um, in the, uh, second half to, to equalize and just basically say, look, we are, sorry, I think it was the, the basically the first goal. So, um, that goal just, you know, having that moment uh, when the team has been getting battered uh, by Seattle most of the game, then all of a sudden for something special like that to happen, it just changed the game. And uh, then you look again at the Kansas City game, uh, Blanco, you know, being the difference maker, you know, scoring, uh, scoring equalizer, um, and you know now Sporting Kansas City saying, okay, we're tied at home, but we got to push for the win because we didn't get the away goal. Uh, and you know, those those are the moments that you look at and you say. Man, you can't bet against this team. The way they're playing, the special players they have, the belief, uh, you know, the defensive backbone, it's all there. Just going into Atlanta now, um, what are sort of your expectations for this game, this MLS Cup? Uh, Timbers obviously going up against a team that got 69 points during the regular season. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be a big challenge. I think certainly when you play uh, a team like Atlanta, who you know, they took second place in the East, but they, you know, if they had gone over the West, they would have had, you know, more than enough points to take first. Um, and, you know, you, you think about the fact that they are at home. They're a very strong home team, and they know how to play on a on a field in, in a stadium that's just different from, you know, most stadiums in MLS, you know, in terms of its size, capacity, um, and then the turf as well. It's just it's a different kind of turf. So the players are going to have to get used to that. Uh, and then, you know, you, you look at the fact that they're a really talented team. Um, it, it's definitely a challenge. But I, I look at this, this matchup, Jamie, and, and what I really like about it is, is that, okay, yes, Atlanta uh, on paper has a better squad. They, they spent more money. 
They've gotten more points. They've scored more goals. That's great. But the Timbers are more of a unit. They look to me like, uh, they look to me like, you know, if push comes to shove, uh, they will respond in the right way. Whereas Atlanta, I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, uh, they, they weren't able to, to get the job done to win the supporter shield in, in a, a big time moment, uh, that they, you know, really, I think, uh, regret. And this is everything for them, this MLS Cup. So I, I, I really, uh, believe that the Timbers have a good chance of going in there and playing the soccer they know how to play. They don't have to, they don't have to be on the ball the whole game, uh, so the pressure's off in there. Uh, the expectation is probably not that they're going to win the game, so they're the underdog, which is a great place to be when you're in a championship game. Uh, so they can relax. They can be themselves. They can be loose, which, you know, you look at this run, that's the way they've been the whole time. Nobody expected them to go down to Dallas and win that series. I don't think the expectation against Seattle was the same. And then they were, again, the underdog against Kansas City. So, yeah, I think the, the storylines really you know, play into the Timbers being able to go in there and, and surprise some people, whereas you know, for all of us who follow them, I, I don't think it would be surprised if they were to, to win that game. How excited are you to go down there and <laughs> broadcast this game? No, I, I'm, I'm stoked. I, I, uh, I, you know, this is my, my first opportunity to, to call a championship game. I'll, I'll be on the radio with uh, Ross uh, Smith and Jake Ziven. Uh, and, and I've, I've developed a really good relationship with those guys. I'm just, I, I just enjoy calling games with them. So it, it's going to be a wonderful trip. MLS Cup is almost like in the Academy Awards of, of soccer. The who's who of the soccer world shows up. It's a big party all week. And, and as a player, I've never gotten to be a part of that. It's been more just like, okay, you got to go. You got to do your job. And then you get maybe one night to either celebrate or cry in your beer. And uh, certainly I'm, I'm looking forward to, you know, the, the the social aspect of it. And then, you know, being a part of the game, uh, calling the game. And, um, you know, uh, it's going to be tough, I think, because, again, I'm part of this club. So, you know, I want the Timbers to succeed. Um, so I'll be a part of the roller coaster just like all, all the rest of the fans out there will be. And, and it's really exciting when your club gets to this point in time because you never know when they're going to come back. And for the Timbers to have, you know, had so much success in the last, you know, a few years, um, in addition to the thorns, I think it, it just really, um, it really puts the onus on the fact that, hey, we're Soccer City USA and uh, our teams have a ton of success. So, uh, you'll obviously be pulling for the Timbers and, and excited for the game. All right. I saved the most important question for last. Uh, <laughs> are you going to cut your beard in solidarity, uh, if they win? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I was actually asked that uh uh yesterday we had a broadcast meeting and I think Jake asked me that. I um I unfortunately I don't think I'll be cutting the beard this time around. I may let Espria get another uh chop. Uh, he took a, a big bite out of my my beard uh, in 2015 after we won. Uh so maybe I'll let him come back out cuz he's Mr. November and you know he he seems to step up and in uh you know, these moments, um, it's December now, and uh, I think he's going to step up big time. So if he does, you know, and he wants to take a bite of the apple with his scissors, you know, I think I'll let him. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much, Nat, for coming on. Thank you, Jamie. Always a pleasure. Whoa, what an interview. Oh, my God, that was amazing. I can't believe you got him to say that. Did you Did you think about that question for a long time? I... Oh, my God. The way you structured it, I didn't know it was coming. <laughs> I didn't know what was coming, JV. Wow.
might have been the best interview I think we've had on the show since I've come on. Did you just say this after every interview? You just, you just like, that was the best interview. Those questions were amazing. I say that when I go into the bank and just open a new account. Whoa, what an application. Did you just create this right now? It's printed up so nicely. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was great to hear from Nat. Uh, someone's perspective that I, I think does add a lot going into this um, MLS Cup. And I, obviously, I, I think it's easy to draw some similarities between this year and 2015 and uh, we'll see if it ends in the same way but uh, <laughs> either way it's been a good year it's been a good year speaking of somebody with perspectives the chris reifer memorial <laughs> hot take interlude do you want to go first or you want to go second i'll go i'll go first okay uh so i i think a lot of people have been talking about this um on twitter obviously this week on, on the timbers army website um the timbers army were was allotted what appears and I want to add some perspective to this and not and everyone might not know just based on um, my conversations with MLS today um, and I'll have an article on this as well but Timbers Army was essentially allotted 1300 tickets for the MLS Cup game obviously uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium seats 70,000 and so that is probably like about two percent of the uh, capacity of the stadium um, MLS has confirmed to me that they did actually also offer an additional 400 tickets to Timbers fans, um, but that was more of an internal process um, for season ticket holders, so it wasn't directly through the supporters group, uh, which is why people maybe haven't seen that number. So essentially 1,700 tickets. That is, in fact, um, since the MLS went to this format of having the higher seed host a uh, MLS Cup final, it's the most away supporters tickets they've offered. Now, because of the percentage of the stadium, it is uh, still less than 5%. Uh, that's what I, I think the Timbers Army and other supporters groups were requesting, uh, that away supporters be allotted 5% of the tickets, uh, percent of the capacity for the stadium. I think MLS, you know, was able to boost their regular number from 900. And I think they it was good that they went through the effort of trying to get more tickets for the Timbers Army. Um, but as of now, it looks like they're not looking to make, to make changes to MLS Cup for their number of away sports tickets to be a percentage of the stadium capacity versus just sort of setting that number at 900 and adjusting it as needed. Uh, I think that's a mistake. I, I do think that there should be um, you should be able to sort of, you know, have a significant enough number of away supporters at these venues. And I think 5% is a low but fair number uh, that the Timbers Army was requesting. That would have been closer to 3,500 tickets. Uh, right now, the tickets, if Timbers fans just want to go out and buy tickets, they're going to have to pay a lot of money uh, on the resale market. The tickets were essentially sold out by the time the Timbers even knew they were going to be in the game uh, because the tickets went on sale after Atlanta booked a spot in the MLS Cup. I, I think that's unfortunate. It's preventing Timbers fans from really having the opportunity to get into this game. Um, and, and had there at least been you know, that 5% allotment to Timbers fans, um, I, I think you would have had more of a, a significant away crowd there and fans would feel a little bit better about their ability to potentially go to this big game that you don't have many opportunities to have games like this. So I know the home team is supposed to get the advantage by hosting. Uh, I don't think 5% of total capacity is too much to ask. Uh, And I do think MLS should be looking to, instead of having a set number for any stadium, no matter what the capacity, uh, be looking to turn this into more of a percentage so awakened supporters can get a fair percentage of the seats in a stadium. So my take... No, I mean, what's your opinion? I have very conflicted views on this. I 
on one hand agree with you. I also think that like evoking this FIFA global standard of 5% is kind of it makes sense, but I don't know how people arrived at that 5%. And it keeps taking me down this road that we have all of these rules in the soccer world that are basically designed around the fact that people tend to fight when they get into soccer venues. Like any other sport in this country, you just go buy tickets and you go to the game and you go to a Blazers game and you'll see people wearing Steph Curry jerseys and you don't have to worry about your safety. And so every time we talk about these issues of 5% or uh, where the Timbers Army section is, is it up in the upper deck? Well, that stinks. You know what stinks is that we have a whole culture that assumes that violence is going to happen. And I think it's better that you assume it's going to happen, you plan for it, than just taking a chance that, you know, hey, maybe people won't fight in the sport that historically has had fighting. It's like, why don't we do something to make it so that we aren't, where violence isn't such an implicit given in the sport. So I have very conflicted views on this. Within the context of this one game, yeah, I think that I, whether it's 5%, 8%, 4%, I would like the Timbers fans to have a more of an option to buy tickets. Or like you said, even if it's not more than 5%, have a set time later than Atlanta qualifying that the tickets go on sale and then the Timbers fans should have equal right to get into those. But this whole idea of like this set percentage of allocation, it really glosses over the fact that the only reason these rules are in place is because people have been jerks at soccer games in the past. So why don't we tackle the underlying problem? Because quite frankly, around the world, people are still being jerks at soccer games. So that's why I kind of didn't want to talk about that. I don't know. I thought that was a good addition to the take. It kind of feeds into what it looks like is your actual take. I mean, speaking of being jerks at soccer games, and this is one of the reasons I'm I'm pretty um, happy to live in Portland, but also I want to say this as like a warning to Timbers fans, the Timbers Army, uh, Riveters, because there are places that I've been over the last month or so where this wasn't an issue before, but it's coming up now. Since the playoffs have started, every single venue I've been in, Kansas City, Dallas, Seattle, I can hear the chant on the field. Now, for people that don't know what the chant is, most of you probably do, but the chant is basically something that uh, on goal kicks restarts from one team's end where you'll hear a section of the crowd go, uh, and then they will use in Spanish a derogatory a slur referring to somebody's sexuality. Um, we've had similar slurs in our language too that we have judged to be inappropriate. And this one is unfortunately part of soccer culture in this part of the world. In Dallas, it was really strong. There's a big tradition there of that champion used there. In Seattle, for, in my experience, ever since Copa America Centenario had a couple of games there, it has stayed there. There's this one small section in the southeast part of the stadium. It's it's a very small sliver of fans, but it's there. And then in Kansas City, it was coming out of the supporter section in Kansas City. I mean, look, for a long time, our fan culture has derided Mexican fan culture for not doing enough to get this chant out of the game. The FMF still has campaigns against this down there. Players speak out against it, but it's still such a huge part of things down there. MLS culture, we're not doing enough to eradicate it. We seem to want to think that it's not a problem here. And maybe at one point it wasn't, but if it wasn't and now it is, that shows you that it's growing and we're not being vigilant enough. And we're not we're taking for granted the fact that it hasn't been part of our culture before. It's a part of our culture now. Small part, yes. But when you're in a place like Portland or in Vancouver when I was there at the end of the season, that didn't exist. And it shows you that it's still possible. It also shows you that one day the Timbers might start acquiring new fans who will bring this into the stadium. So fans in Portland need to be vigilant. Fans in Vancouver need to be vigilant. But fans in places like Dallas, Seattle, and Kansas City, 
they need to do more. They need to take pride in their environment the same way that other fans take it pride in theirs because there either is no place for this type of chant or or we're looking at things wrong. So that that is my little <laughs> that's kind of a Goldberg hot take. It's not really a hot take. It's just a passionately said obvious. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's true. I, I think in Kansas City, there it was a great atmosphere. Um, I'd never been to Children's Mercy Park, so I was glad to be there. But um, it was unfortunate, you know, the chant coming out of the sports section and the supporters throwing um, beer cans oh, on the field. By the way, field. all this happened after they went down. Yeah. Like, these are not things. And same thing in Seattle, too. These aren't things that happen just at the beginning of the game in Dallas, it was persistent. But when you see fans resort to this, you kind of know they know it's bad too. Yeah. So that's that. You want to talk about some thorn stuff real quick? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> this week it was, or was it late last week? I don't remember. It was last week, but it yeah. all is run together. Days are running together. <laughs> so this is something that fans were really asking about heading into the next season, what the competition format is going to be, what the schedule is going to be. The league announced it. Still 24 games per team, still 12 home games per team. As far as the, as far as the World Cup is concerned, the league is going to be taking two weeks off for group stage. And that may sound good, but <laughs> what that what people might forget is the players are going to leave long before group stage to join their teams. Some players will be gone a matter of a month. Some players will be gone more than that. A few players will be gone less than that. And then when they come back, it's not like the World Cup just ends and they immediately go back into the team. So two weeks is just the amount of time the NWSL won't be playing. Your favorite players are going to be gone for longer. Yeah, it's difficult because, you know, taking a full month break or something like that is... You know, in the middle of a season, I, I think, um, you know, all the excitement, it, it kind of dies down. It's not great for a league to ever do that. Uh, but two weeks off, I, I mean, players like Tobin Heath, Lindsay Horan, um, Emily Sonnet, potentially AD French, even if she doesn't play, she might yeah. be on that roster as a as a Seems more probable than so, not at this point. Um, unfortunately, she might not ever have a calf, but she might be on the World Cup roster as it as it. We'll get into that later. Oh Let's God, I'm still, I'm still <laughs> exhaling talk about, about that. But those players might be gone for the majority of the season, I mean, at least the majority of the big games. You know, they, They'll be back for playoffs. They'll be back for the final stretch. But you look at 2015, um, that was the worst season the Thorns have had so far. And I, I, I obviously, you know, Paul Riley um, parted ways with the club after that. Uh, you can blame it on the coaches all you want, but um, – the World Cup played into that a lot. So uh, this is going to be a big issue for the Thorns next year. And, and I think the entire league, it's going to take away some of the fun of the NWSL, missing a lot of the best players for a significant, significant portion of the season. Yeah, I mean, the team that won the title that year got hit hard by absences, too. That was S- that was uh, FC Kansas City with Becky Sauerbrunn and Lauren Holiday and Amy Rodriguez. But what they had at the time that Portland didn't have was a culture to sustain them through that. And so at that time, I think it's pretty fairly well known at this point that the Thorns culture wasn't ideal in those uh, first two or three years. And they couldn't sustain both the absences and also people kind of buying back in when they came back from the world cup. And obviously that's a lot different now, but uh, until you go through it, you don't know whether you're going to be able to survive it. And this is going to be a legitimate concern, less of a concern. U S soccer player of the year was announced that five nominees. Uh, Megan Rapino is one of the nominees, Julie Ertz, Alex Morgan, and Tobin Heath and Lindsay Horan are also <laughs> part of the last five. Uh, so this is an award that t- is supposed to encompass everything that the player does club and country throughout the time period the year preceding it 
what's interesting this year is that if you go based purely on national team, Alex Morgan seems to have yeah. a head up. If you incorporate any club soccer at all, Lindsey Horan, Megan Rapino, Tobin Heath have much stronger cases. Maybe not stronger than Morgan, but stronger compared to their other case at that point. Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, for sure. That's a great way of looking at it. I, I think Alex Morgan's probably going to win. And yeah. I think... I'd be shocked if she doesn't. Yeah, I, I mean, I think her national team campaign has been great. I mean, she hasn't been able to do it for Orlando in the same way. But I think this, you know, Alex Morgan is a player that, you know, in her initial years coming in, 2011, 2012, um, you know, really impressed, became like the face of U.S. So- US women's soccer, uh, essentially really quickly became, you know, the person you see in all the ads and whatever. And then was injured for a long time and just wasn't playing her best. And it, it sort of was like, is the person we think of when, when the average person thinks of what women's soccer in America is is like, really even one of the best players. And, and right. I think it's nice to see her um, sort of prove, yeah, no, she is really good now that she's sort of got by the injuries and she can you know, put on a show for, for a year campaign like she did this year. Yeah, I mean, if I were voting for this, I would vote Megan Rapino 1, Lindsay Horan 2, Alex Morgan 3. And that's mostly because I think the NWSL's standard of play is so much higher than most of these yeah. friendlies that you have to weight that performance more. That said, if either of those three win it or Tobin Heath wins it, I'm, I think that's fine. Um, Julie Ertz is the only one here where I'm kind of like, eh. But she's a very good player and she won the award last year, so it's not going to be like a crime yeah. if she wins it. But... I think it's perfectly appropriate for every voter to decide how they want to weight club versus international as long as they give serious consideration to both. Yeah. Okay, the last thing, I'm just going to read this down here really quick because we're not sitting here watching Australian W League games every weekend. I've caught, I've definitely caught a few, but I'm not an expert on the league. So for people who want an update on that, Melbourne Victory, a team without a thorn, is first in the league right now. They're about 40% through their regular season at this point. The... Uh, best performing team that actually has a thorn on it at this point is Canberra United, which sits in fourth place. And uh, that's the team Ellie Carpenter is on. She's played five games. She's worn the armband for a game. She has a goal. She's clearly picking up where she left off over a great year with the Thorns. Uh, right below them, Brisbane Roar. Celeste Bure has been, again, a cornerstone midfielder for them. Haley Rosso has not played yet. Although on Instagram, I think this morning, she noted that this is the 100th, today is the 100-day anniversary of her injury. So it was it was a happy message. She was like, all right, we're so far behind this at this point. But she hasn't got back to the field. Uh, Britt Eckerstrom is starting for the Newcastle Jets again. They sit in sixth place. Uh, but through four games, they've only conceded, conceded three goals. I don't know if that means Britt Eckerstrom is performing great or not. But clearly, she's not performing poorly. And then Caitlin Ford with Sydney. Sydney was maybe the most talented team coming into the year. They sit in eighth place right now. But Caitlin Ford not only has two goals in four games, but I definitely have been seeking out her games. She uh, she has a little bit more explosion back than she had when she was first playing here, first coming back from her uh, injury. And so she's looking a little bit more like her 100% self. Jamie, your favorite part of the show. <laughs> it's the part of the show we do predictions, and I know... You know, having followed this team for years, having followed this team so closely this year, you're gonna, you're just gonna radiate the satisfaction of being able to run counter to the national press, all these doubters out there that are overlooking the Timbers. You're gonna take such satisfaction in being able to say that the Timbers are gonna win on Saturday. So let me give you this stage so you can do that right now. I'm just gonna sit back and be happy for you. Yeah, th- thanks for that introduction, Richard. <laughs> well, I. 
don't think the Timbers are going to win. Thank you very much for listening to this episode <laughs> of Soccer Made in Portland. What? I, I, I'm going to predict a 2-1 Atlanta win. I think this, the Timbers are going to be in this. I think they're going to show a lot of fight. I, I think it's hard not to take Atlanta in this game, and it's not be just because you're underestimating the Timbers, but everything we've talked about, how good they've been this year, how good they've been in the playoff run, how they've continued to evolve as a team. They're at home. They're at a place they haven't lost unless they've gone down to 10 men. The Timbers very easily could prove me wrong. Yeah. Um, this is a one-off game. The Timbers have shown that they can find a green pan for every opponent. They can compete with Atlanta. Uh, but I think Atlanta is the, I think Atlanta is deservingly the favorite going into this game. Yeah, I don't, I'm so glad I don't have to make these predictions. Not only because I don't want to be predicting four against Portland. It's after watching tape of these games and trying to look at it from the very narrow perspective that I have now, not having to worry about anything else except for talking in the Timbers universe, I see all the ways that the Timbers are going to have to be really great to beat Atlanta. But I don't think that's beyond them at all. I think if they play like they're capable of playing, they could very well win on Saturday. Okay, well, how do I put that into a prediction? Or how do I even put that into a percentage? So I think your prediction is perfectly reasonable. I, I really wish you would have told me about it so I would have written a different <laughs> intro for this segment. But um, whatever. So speaking of whatever, I have no chance to catch you in points, which really isn't fair because I started halfway through the season. (laughs) But as everybody who listens to this show knows, I'm having to come up with increasingly more ludicrous predictions with the hope that I can hit a 300. Uh, But they can't be insane predictions because I don't want an infinity because an infinity only theoretically catches you. So I need to get something between like, I don't know, 300 uh, 300 and something finite at this point. So... This is this is kind of an inside joke bet because we're always noting how many yellow cards Diego Chara gets. I'm going to say in this one of the two most important games Diego Chara has ever played that he will have more goals plus assists than yellow cards. <laughs> you know, I mean that's totally plausible. I don't know that uh, I know. it's going to be as many points as you want it to be. But I don't think it's gonna be if he gets like three goals, I know. I'm, ho- <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm hoping. <laughs> I don't know if I'm hoping for this, but I think if he gets if he has two goals and an assist, and then he gets a second yellow card in the 96th minute, look, I'm saying this out loud right now that I'm that's the kind of scenario I'm going for here. If he ends up with a goal and zero yellow cards, or an assist and zero yellow cards, give me two points. Just be like, whatever. That's just a normal game. If something crazy happens, give me more points. I'm going for crazy. So let me redo this. I think. Uh, Chara has more goals plus assists and yellow cards in a crazy way. <laughs> That's part of my prediction. Okay. I don't know if you'll get infinity. We, well, we, you don't want infinity, so that's... And I didn't get infinity for the crazy way the Timbers managed to get through in Seattle. Okay, so. you want to talk about this again? You better you better close the show now. Okay, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about this on our own. Our listeners don't need we to hear it anymore. <laughs> Okay. Well, where's Aquaman in Portland? Uh, you can find us every week on OregonLive.com, Tinnerist.com, and Stumptown Footy. You can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. We will be back next week after that. We will be back at some other point uh, in the off season. It won't be as consistent, um, but we'll definitely be back next week to recap the MLS Cup uh, either way it goes. Uh, and so until then, take care. <laughs>